Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. We're all about producing content where you can be inspired by and learn from amazing female entrepreneurs and leaders to help you achieve and even exceed your career goals. Before we begin this week's episode, though, it would mean a huge amount if you could rate and review our show if you haven't already. Consider it as your kind deed for the day. And we'd love to hear from you. So why not follow us or message us on LinkedIn? Mention the podcast and we'll be all ears. And now enjoy this week's episode. Hello, g'day and welcome to the show. Our guest this week is Professor Selena Bartlett, an Australian neuroscientist whose life's work is all about understanding how our brains work. A subject that's so close to my heart. Selena has held senior roles with leading research institutes in the US and Australia, and she's currently leading pioneering research into addiction and obesity at the Queensland University of Technology. What drew us to Selena's story is both her passion to understand how our brains work, but also her mission to educate we non-neuroscientists about the things that we can all do to improve our brain's health and even sometimes completely change our lives for the better. And as well as her day job, Selena's passion for sharing her knowledge of our brains sees her hosting her own podcast called Thriving Minds, as well as speaking and writing regularly. She does indeed. Now, in this episode, you'll learn very personal reasons Selena switched her career path as a young woman away from pharmacy and towards neuroscience. You'll hear Selena's fascinating explanation of what causes mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, how she overcame her sugar addiction when Selena realized the impact sugar has on the brain, some radically simple things we can all do to improve our brain's health, and why Selena thinks becoming boss of your brain can completely change the direction of your life. So buckle up and enjoy this fascinating conversation with the passionate and pioneering Professor Selena Bartlett. Professor Selena Bartlett, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you for having me. Very excited to meet you and your audience. We are very excited to have you on the show. And I think the topic of your expertise today, it's just going to be such a fascinating conversation. And a question that we like to ask all of our guests to kick off is, Selena, if you met someone for the first time at a dinner party and they asked you, what do you do? How would you answer them reasonably briefly? Well, the reason I know the answer to this is because on my dating app, I put neuroscientist uh, (laughs) just a few years ago and I'm now married. And the person that responded to that said to me, I've never met anyone that would ever put neuroscientists on their dating app. (laughs) So that's exactly who I am inside and out. 
it's who I am, not just in what I do, but in every part of my life. And that, it sounds like that introduction worked. It, it did. It's that's a huge other story. Um, <laughs> but yes, that's why I think that's a perfect question to start this whole thing and journey on. Well, I love that. Is there a story, because you're obviously passionate about neuroscience, is there a story for how you came to become a neuroscientist? There is. It's a really great story. Uh, In 1989, I was a pharmacist at the University of Queensland doing an honours degree. I was actually looking at consumer behaviour, which is really boring, but that's what I was doing. And I was going to open pharmacies in Queensland for women because I felt like only men owned them and we needed a cooperative where people could share profit but also have flexible hours. But during that year, my dad was a pharmacist just to, and I'm from a country town, so just to let everyone know that's my background. And then my sister, Francesca, got very ill and my mother called me and I was actually next to a huge computer that was the size of a room that my desk sat next to this massive computer. And I remember the day and the moment and I answered the phone, like a proper telephone, and mum said, oh, Selena, it's your sister, there's something wrong. And so my sister ended up in a lockup ward in Walston Park in the northern part of Brisbane. And during that time, she was made a ward of the state and she was in a pad, near padded cells. And at one moment, we're in this really closed room and the doctors were there and she was catatonic sitting in the corner. And I was sitting there thinking, we really mustn't know how the brain works because for what my sister's been through, this seems like a really crazy way to treat the brain. And so from that moment, I finished my degree in honours, but then I stopped being a pharmacist except working as a locum and did a PhD to work out the brain. And uh, I've been on that journey ever since. And that started in 91 after I got married, actually, for the first time after the honeymoon, I started my PhD and it was in neuropharmacology. And that's me applying my pharmacist hat to study the brain. I end up then moving to Canberra. I was trained by the top neuroscientists in Australia and some of them globally over about six year period in the 90s. And then I ran out of tools to understand the brain in the 90s. And I moved to America with a three-year-old and a four-month-old baby and started a research lab over there. And I was there for 12 years. I end up working with drug companies and all sorts of stuff really thinking I knew what I had to do to really make my sister's life better or other people's lives better. And then everything changed because I worked out I was wrong. Uh, I was going in the wrong direction, both in my own life, uh, in my work and understanding of the brain. And that's where I am today is that concept of understanding neuroplasticity. And that is the brain's um, remarkable ability to heal, to be trained like a muscle and all of these other things, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. Mm. And that's what I'm doing now. That's why I have a podcast. I write books for the public, blogs, and run a research lab really about unleashing and understanding this power of healing in the brain, which is understanding the principles of neuroplasticity. Right. And when you said you, you know, you found that everything you'd been sort of working towards and studying was wrong, what do you sort of mean, practically speaking? So it's not wrong. It's just not if I just kept going in that direction, I would never understand how the brain worked in terms of what causes mental illness or mental health disorders. And when, I, when I'm when i in that category, I'm talking everything, anxiety, depression, addiction, obesity, bipolar, schizophrenia, you name it in all of the DSM-5 criteria that you'll read about in the manual, because 
that's not what explains the underlying causes, which I then came to learn are related to multi-generational epigenetics and the way that impacts brain architecture. I remember the day I was sitting in the lab uh, on my own. I remember reading all the papers and I remember like a lightning bolt coming through my brain. Oh my God, you've been studying the wrong thing for 20 years. Why do you think you can just target that pathway and develop a drug and that's going to help anybody? You crazy fool. And it's useful. Don't get me wrong. We need these treatments. We need every support going. Absolutely. I'm not saying that, but I was trying to understand it. And then when I got it, I'm like, right, now I've got to change what I'm doing in my lab. I've got to get to the causes and I've got to develop more prevention strategies. And it's got to be multi-generational. And we've got to help people educate themselves and get this knowledge and develop some of the parenting manuals to and aging too. It's, I mean, it goes to all of us. Absolutely. I think that's just so important what you've just said, Selena, because there is very little understanding, I think, amongst the general population about the brain, isn't there? Yes. I, I actually had an experience myself where I got really sick with glandular fever and chronic fatigue. And the thing that actually really solved the problem, and I don't mean just just sort of made me feel better, but actually solved the problem was learning about neuroplasticity and how you change the brain. So I'm a big proponent of this. Before we go further, a lot of listeners are kind of going to say, hang on, you know, what causes schizophrenia or what causes, you know, the underlying causes? The brain's been built over millions of years and all for our survival. And it's a really amazing machine. It's done really well to keep us alive. That's why we're strong and resilient. But some of the genes that come along on that journey don't always serve us well. So that's our kind of hardware but then are surrounded around that is we don't live in a vacuum. We live through what we eat, through what we experience from the environments that we're living in. And probably if you want to think about a few things that really impact the way the brain's architecture wires towards different susceptibilities, whether it's to becoming more anxious in social settings, whether it's becoming addicted to alcohol, whether it's becoming like hearing voices or these symptoms that we like to call bipolar or schizophrenia and all of these other baskets of different things that we label people around. It's this early life experiences that happened between zero and 18. It's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study that really changed our understanding of the underlying drivers that increase our susceptibility to go on to develop these things later in life. And it's not just zero to 18. It's also our parents, zero to 18 or their life. It's and aunties and uncles. You know, we're a cocktail. We're a cocktail of ancestors. And so that cocktail comes together. And uh, some of us go on to be able to protect ourselves from maybe like my sister, she ended up with schizophrenia-like symptoms that in the beginning they didn't know what to call it. And then, you know, other people like myself might have gone on to get depression later in my life without me realizing it um, when I was running a big lab and not taking care of myself at all versus, you know, we're all from one family, one mum and dad. My mum and dad have been married for 58 years and we had an amazing childhood when you look at it. But when you really dig into the pieces, I can tell you why my sister probably got more susceptibility than I did, for example. And this is not doom and gloom because people are very resilient around all of this. What I'm interested in is, is you know, you, you got that new understanding. What were some of the sort of 
it's simple things that anyone could do. Yes, and I still teach this all the time. It's called the as soon as you open your eyes in the morning is to look out the window and take a panoramic view, not onto your phone, not onto anything else. Just simply as soon as the eyes open, look out the window and take in a panoramic view because the brain is built for a visual system. It takes up a lot of the footprint in the brain. And when you do that, and this is work of Andrew Huberman, who's you probably heard of his podcast coming out of Stanford and others. He's a visual neuroscientist. And it dampens down the autonomic nervous system, which is the stress part of our reaction parts of our brain, where we used to call it the autonomic nervous system, and all textbooks still do, but that's going to be changed because we can actually see the subconscious now. So when you take that panoramic view, you're actually setting up your brain for the day to try and look for the good things rather than the bad things because when we get into this state which I call the spiral everything looks gray everything looks bad you're very much inside yourself whereas just simply using the physiology of your eye and your visual system you're already doing something good for yourself which is promoting good hormones inside yourself without you even having to get out of bed because even getting out of bed when people are really, really in that state is really hard. And that was really the first step for me. I was in a privileged position. This this happened to me during 2013. And I was in a privileged position because I had at that point studied the brain for 20-something years, but then I had already discovered neuroplasticity between 2009 and that point. I hadn't implemented it. It was just a seed in my brain. But I met all of the godfathers of neuroplasticity when I was in San Francisco, and I, I just got very lucky. And I decided that I was strong enough to do this because I could see that just as I'd learned to go down the spiral, even though it was going to be hard, I could learn to go up and yeah. train my brain like I'd be learning a language. Yeah. And that's what I started to do from that moment. And but I mean, there are easier things people can do. That was me. I'm talking about my own personal journey. But now what I'm trying to do through these educational platforms is to help people not have to go down. Because once you're in the spiral, it's so much harder than if you've just gone down a little step. Absolutely. It's the spiral is is fast, steep, yes. and slippery. And you don't know you're on it, do you? Not at all. <laughs> Until you're down in the basement in the and dark. I have to tell you, I was shocked that I ended up there. I was giving lectures to pharmacy students around all sorts of things, and I honestly didn't think it would happen to me. And that's when I realized how wrong I had got it, really wrong, because I was one of these superwomen types that really believed if you just had 10 plates spinning, one comes down, you just get the stick and stick it up again. The other one that's come down and, you know, running, a, as you can imagine, uh, many people listening, running yep. a big, supervising lots of people, very competitive, toxic, actually, environment. You can imagine the environment I was working in at UCSF. And then running a family, I was trying to be a super mum, you know, the extracurricular softball soccer swap in the car always the one speeding through the streets of Berkeley to get to work for my PI meeting at 9am and all of the things like that go with all of that. And I just thought I was a superhero, to be honest, at, at that time until I wasn't anymore. Yeah. So, it's depressing, th isn't it? That that, that you, you learn that you're not a superhero. Literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> literally, literally depressing. But yeah. it, it can be really, but the, once you get the techniques that we'll talk about, you can be more of a superhero in your life. You can be more not spinning the plates, but really recognizing your brain keeps the score and it's very clever machine. 
and it will it doesn't like to, all of that garbage it, and it will shut you down so that's the amazing machine that we have inside our skull and that's the bit we can change yeah and you were about to uh, share another sort of simple thing people can do i think to yes. sort of prevent the spiral starting the spiral downwards in mood and the likes the other thing is a cold shower so uh, at the end of a warm shower, just turn the water to your toes on cold for 10 seconds at the end of a warm shower to start off with, and that's the first step. As, and then slowly work your way up your body until the back of your neck, and that will change your and drive neuroplasticity, new pathways. The brain loves it, and there's lots of reasons why this is working because the cold changes the way the nervous system is operating blood vessels. It's causing natural vasodilation and constriction. So what a great way to start on neuroplasticity journey, simply. With the cold shower, because uh, I'm a big believer, but I've heard sort of some people say, oh, this research that says you shouldn't have your your face in, uh, submerged. That's not good. It, or, you know, different parts of your body. But if, you know, if you no. worked up and you got comfortable with cold water, do you just let your whole body submerge for a minute or two at least? Yes, and build up over time with the breathing yeah. exercises. So this is the work of Wim Hof and many others yes. before him. He's great, isn't he? Yes, I got to uh, interview the person that imaged Wim Hof's brain. Oh, mm. yes. On my podcast. <laughs> and his name is Dr. Dwadka. He's a cognitive neuroscientist. And uh, what did Dwadka said to me was the most amazing discovery because he had was measuring his skin temperature changes and his skin temperature did not change in response to the hot and cold. Mm. And he'd never seen anything like that before. Meaning that we can consciously, because we're humans, we can consciously control our subconscious. Temperature regulation or what we like to call the autonomic nervous system is not autonomic. It's not autonomous at all. We as humans yeah. with appropriate training can actually work out how to activate some of that. And to me, that's rewriting the medical textbooks. It's paradigm shifting. And paradigm shifts take a long time to happen yes. in the public discourse. What Wim Hof has achieved is amazing and inspiring. But I also want to shift to something that happens to all of us so often in our day-to-day, -day, particularly because you're at the Centre for Addiction and Obesity, and that's that sneaky ingredient called sugar. <laughs> yeah. What does sugar do, just really briefly, to our brains? The first thing it does is make you feel better. Yeah, that dopamine <laughs> <It does>. hit. <laughs> and what I like to say is that's a perfect demonstration that your brain's stressed out. Think of the brain as the scales of justice, because I believe you might have lawyers listening. It's the great <laughs> scales of justice, meaning that it's always seeking to balance stress with reward. And so when we're getting stressed during the day, throughout the day, it's building up. And so by mm. the afternoon, it's driving us to find dopamine hits, which are in sugar, chocolate, wine, alcohol, gambling, working, all sorts of ways. The brain's shopping. shopping. Shopping's a good one. Uh, Over-exercising. Oh, there's so many. The mm. brain's so clever because it gives it that hit to relieve all the stress because stress sends up cortisol and all these hormones that actually end up killing the brain. And that's why we end up with dementia and, you know, all of these other things because we don't take care of stress. 
ever except through these unhealthy ways of dealing with it that we're, that are subconscious to us that we don't realize. Once you become aware of that, and I always say to people, that's the number one tool I use to know I'm stressed out because you're eating it without even realizing it. And that was my big addiction was sugar. What I didn't realize in my lab at the time, because I was studying alcohol addiction, sugar was actually a control in our experiment. And that's how we discovered that it activates exactly the same pathways in the brain that alcohol and nicotine activate and why it's Mm. so addictive. Wow. And so I'm going to cut to the chase because, you know, what do we do about this? What are some simple things that we can do? I think especially this kind of afternoon, like almost headache or nagging, incredible magnetic pull towards a fridge, whatever it might be. (laughs) Absolutely. What I did myself personally, I started to stand more than sitting in my work in the morning. And then I also started to read all the labels of the food that I was eating because I'd had no idea how much sugar I was eating at all. I didn't realize tomato sauce had sugar in it. I didn't realize low-fat strawberry yogurt was bad. I, I was giving my kids orange juice, breakfast cereals. I used to eat a lot of pasta, pasta sauces to feed the family at night. I just really had no idea how it had become embedded in the food chain. And so I started small, one item at a time, a one sugary item for me, but then Sometimes that may not be enough. So it's always handy to have some, a go-to instead, like um, something like raw nuts. So I turn to raw almonds and cashews as my stress item because sometimes you need it. Yes. There's so much we could cover with you, Selena. But another thing that I've been pondering for a while on a different tangent, which is looking to the future, and it's something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately, which is it's all quite easy overall, to come up with goals for the next quarter, the next, even the next year. But when you're trying to actually build a meaningful life, you actually really need to be able to look ideally 10 years down the track and kind of think, you know, where do you want to be? I know um, the author, Rachel Botsman, who's written a, a book on trust and a book on the sharing economy, sort of shared a quote with me once, you know, that humans, we tend to overestimate what we can achieve in a short amount of time, but we really radically can underestimate what we can achieve over a longer period of time. So there's this great upside, but it feels like the brain really struggles to try and picture in my case, picture me, Greta, in 10 years' time and to really put flesh on the bones of what my life might look like in sort of considerable detail. What is it, if you've studied this at all, that about the brain that kind of makes this longer-term thinking? And it's relevant to how what we put in our bodies as fuel too because if we don't see those long-term consequences in a vivid way, we sort of don't pay attention to them. Yeah, that's a really great question. The brain's not that good at um, predicting the future because it's really trying to help you live in the present. Yeah. And your question brings me to thinking about when you're thinking about goals and meaning and purpose and what you want to be remembered for and legacy, you don't want to end at, at the end of your life thinking, if only I did this, if only I did that, I should have done this. Mm. And I think I like the idea and some of the best books and thinking around this for me personally has been thinking about my epitaph. So what would I like to be remembered for? What would I want to make sure I've got no regrets around? And that allows me to make really, allows me to prioritize decisions on a daily basis that will contribute to how I feel when I die which sounds really strange, but when you've got a lot on your plate and you've got a lot of achievements and goals that you're striving for, which are really related to, 
I don't know what everyone's goals on this are that are listening, but often it's around, you know, career goals or material things or all of those things. It can leave you missing out on the things that will bring you the most meaning in your life uh, when your life is no longer present. And what I mean by that, so just say you have a really big meeting coming up next week and you're meant to be there. But then something happens around you that's really important, like a loved one, something happens to a loved one. These kind of conflicting things are happening all the time. And what happens is we tend to lean into taking for granted the things that matter the most to us to make sure we're acting on our goals. And we're really rewarded for that. But what I think is when you have this epitaph vision of who will surround you at the end, it allows you to not worry about anything in your life because you know that if something happens to you next week, because we don't know our date, so to speak, then you will know and have no regrets. The other thing we like to add to that is to think of three things you're grateful for and not just what you're grateful for, but who's grateful for what you've done for them. Like have it come back to you. And that's really hard to do. So, for example, you've got this wonderful podcast that you're trying to help people be successful in their life. You imagine in the morning thinking about one of them have done something that's really made a difference to their life and they're really grateful to you that you've allowed that to happen for them for nothing. So, you know, we never think like that. We always think about, you know, I'm grateful for my mum or my dad or my dog or my house. The the beautiful sunshine today, yeah. Beautiful sunshine today. And in Australia, we're actually very fortunate. Most of us are really lucky. Mm. But but turning it around like that really changes our ability to see that we're here to look after other people Mm. and not just ourselves. I love that. I think it's really unique. I've I've not heard anyone, obviously, big fan of Martin Seligman and the gratitude exercises and the like, but to sort of get yourself to think who who might be grateful for something I've done in the last 24 hours or whatever is powerful. The other thing I just wanted to clarify, you know, you talk about the epitaph and I sort of imagined at that point you're sort of thinking about the words and the message on your headstone um, sort of theoretically speaking, but then you talked about the picture of who you wanted to be around you. So uh, when you're thinking about this sort of being your guiding light and your North Star in terms of the decisions you make on a day-to-day micro basis, is it a mixture of the people and the visual as well as the kind of how you want to be remembered? Yeah, and it's not even about how I want to be remembered. It's what I've come to see is that the only thing that matters in life are relationships relationships and connections are the only thing that you should really be driving as much as you can in your life for health and longevity. And this is not just uh, me making that up. This is like lots of research around the Harvard Grant study of men, the longest living study of men from 1932. They were hoping to find diet, exercise and connection. What they found was that was the quality of the relationships that drove aging and longevity and happiness, not the number the quality of those connections. It's just so powerful. And it, you know, it just brings it back to down to, I think you've distilled it to the absolute fundamental in life, haven't you? So sort of succinctly. Yeah, absolutely. Selena, I wanted to segue a little bit now and talk about your career. You know, we've talked we've talked a bit about your sort of epiphany and all of your work, but you know, you have been a, a very successful leader 
within your field. You know, we're really interested in your take on what you think sort of a one or two habits that you formed as a leader that have sort of led to your success. Oh, thank you. I've never been asked that question. I think it's a really important one. What I discovered on the journey was when I was in labs and I was treated like a pair of hands and it was very competitive, who was going to get first author on the paper, et cetera, people weren't working together in a way, but we're all in the same lab. And I found that kind of distressing. And then I thought to myself, when I get the opportunity to start my own research lab, I'm not going to do it like everyone else is doing it. So where I was, people were doing things that were quite horrific to each other, like freezing each other's samples, Wow! uh, doing all sorts of things to try and win this race. It's a highly competitive thing when you're trying to publish in really big prestigious journals and come up with these new discoveries. And I was actually going to leave because I found it really toxic environment. But I got this opportunity. They said, okay, Selena, because of your background, because I was a pharmacist by training, we need someone to develop treatments for alcohol addiction. And none of us are doing it because we just want to study our own thing. And so we're going to give you $1 million in one year to do this. And everyone else around was shocked and they don't know why I got that opportunity. Either did I, but I said, yes, no one else would have, but I did. And so I took that opportunity. And what I did right from the get-go, I said to anyone that was working with me, no matter if they were doing the dishes they were helping other people with experiments. I said, we're all on this together. Whatever you come up with, whatever you contribute, you're on the paper. And with that came a synergistic interaction where people knew that no matter what was happening in my lab, they would be part of it. And what that meant was for young people entering PhDs, masters, undergraduate students, they would leave with something more than just a paycheck, they would leave with their name on a paper. So if you go and Google some of my papers, um, especially from when I was in America, I was running a very big lab there, you'll see I have really large number of authors on papers and they all made contributions. And mostly those people are normally put in acknowledgements or not at all recognized. And that was really the leverage, not using people. It's just what I fundamentally believe in people, that they're more than the parts that were together we're so much stronger. And I think that's why I was successful um, because I only had a year, but I managed to turn it into 12 years and millions of dollars of funding. And I was on ABC, Good Morning America, through our discoveries. And it wasn't me. It was all of us. They would come into my office with ideas and I'd say, go for it. And they go, but no one else says I can do that. And I said, but we're not no one else. We're us. We're going to work together. And I think that working together where people all get the credit and the recognition and feel safe is the critical ingredient that led to my success as a leader in a very harsh, competitive, really difficult environment. Fantastic. You know, it feels like that's the heart of coming up with true innovation. And this last question that I'm going to ask may well be very much connected to the answer that you've just given us, or, or maybe it's not, but what does success look like for you? Well, that's a really hard question. <laughs> I know. It's a big one. I would say I decided that success for me in 1998 was going to look like that no matter what happened to me, if anything happened to me tomorrow, a car accident or anything, I would be very proud of myself. 
And that means uh, looking after people in all situations. It means knowing I'm successful without stamping on anyone to get there. It means uh, knowing that I did and respected my parents, took care of my children as best I could with the tools I had, knowing that they would be proud of what I did. Same you know, with my husband, his children, my children. I think how I conduct myself. I guess, and and that I would I appreciate the person making my coffee the same way that I appreciate someone that might be helping me make the next big discovery in my lab. That to me they are equal, and that I think we are all equal. And I think when I if I pass, knowing that I did my best to understand the brain to help the lives of people, then I achieve what I was here to achieve. And no matter what happens to me at any time, then I. I'm good to go. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. It sounds like you're truly living by your values. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm just a little human. Yeah, absolutely. We're all, yeah, that's right. Damn, we're so fallible, aren't we? Yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah, well, it's not easy, is it, in this world? It isn't easy. It isn't easy, but, uh, you know, we keep coming back to it. We keep trying as hard as we can. Yeah. And I love what you're doing to help other people get something that might resonate with them that allows them to be thriving and not just surviving. Thank you so much. Selena. with that, we'll say thank you so much for such a wonderfully rich and interesting conversation. It was really fascinating. One of the things, you know, I think maybe our hoping our listeners might be a, a little bit intrigued about learning more about the brain and bringing that into their lives and the lives of their loved ones. What would you recommend in terms of resources that our listeners should look for? Well, as you know, I also have a podcast called Thriving Minds where I interview all the experts around the world. I have a website where with all my blogs, I write a column for Body and Soul magazine, and I'm sure you'll put the link to my website in your We certainly work. will. It's yes. at profselinabartlett.com. There's so many resources, uh, other podcasts you can listen to, like Andrew Puberman's podcast is brilliant, Being Human. Oh, there's so many wonderful resources out there now. So just lean into something that resonates with you. And the one thing I want everyone to leave with, you can become the boss of your brain. Just believe you can and find the resources to work out some little things that work for you that can completely change the direction of your life. And you have the power to do that. Absolutely. Totally resonate with that. Well, thank you again, Selena. Really fantastic. And we love what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wow. What I found so fascinating about Selena's advice is just how simple some of the tips to improve your brain's health are. You know, I was not expecting something like looking out the window first thing in the morning, for example. I guess I'd probably, if I think about it, been expecting some some advice like, you know, do crosswords or do Sudoku or something. But, you know, looking out the window, it's just so simple. I'd never have thought of it. Yeah, I know. I've been having cold showers at the end of my shower every day since we spoke to Selena. And I've got to say, I really do feel really great afterwards. I mean, I guess it's why I love ocean swimming. Yeah, yeah. And how does it make you your day different, do you think? Well, I actually feel it in the in the moment, you know, obviously after getting over the cold and the shock of the cold, I just feel like my body is like more energized somehow. I, I, I don't know. It's really hard to explain. I think you just got to do it. Just give it a go. Yeah. I mean, 
I've been doing kind of cold showers at the end as well. And yeah, I guess there is, it's like mind over matter too, programming yourself to sort of think, wow, this is tingly and lovely as opposed to this is Oh, freezing. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, I also love Selena's way of describing how when we get more and more stressed, then our cravings for things like sugar or shopping, depending on what your kind of stress vice is, if you like, you know, goes up proportionately based on, you know, the amount of stress we get. So I, I hadn't thought about it in terms of those uh, scales of justice that she referred to. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> really puts it into perspective, doesn't it? You know, and doing these things that Selena recommends, such as looking out the window or ending with a cold shower, can actually help us reduce how often we go for that sugar or stress shop or, you know, whatever it is, because those simple exercises can help reduce how stressed our brains feel. Yeah, and that's the beauty of these simple things. They're not directly connected to what's making you stress, but by doing these techniques, it's reducing your stress anyway, which I really love. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for our next episode with a pioneering woman who's spending much of her time thinking about the metaverse and NFTs. For those of you who are wondering what an NFT is, it's a non-fungible token. Yeah, definitely a fascinating Web3 focus there, but also you'll find it super interesting if you're an art lover. So don't miss this one. In the meantime, stay happy. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Look out that window and tell someone important you love them. Ciao for now.